A.W. Tozer famously said, what you think about God is the most important thing about you. That's a bold statement. What you think about God is the most important thing about you. And it's true, though. What you believe about God, how you think about God, dictates everything about how you live. It dictates the hope you have. It dictates how you endure trials and how you handle successes. What you believe about God is why you get up and do what you do until you go to sleep the next the evening. What you believe about God is vital. When it comes to God's mercy, withholding the judgment we deserve, how do you think about God? Specifically when it comes to God being merciful, how do you think about Him? Do you think about God being merciful, but when you really answer the question, I'd be more merciful than Him, I would give mercy to more people than He does, or do you see God's mercy as immense, unfathomable, unplumbable to get to the depths? How merciful do you see God? This text before us in Jonah 3 will present a God who is far more merciful than we could ever fathom, who gives mercy to rebellious prophets and mercy to a rebellious city. This God is merciful. So Jonah chapter 3 We'll read the whole chapter. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, And he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth, from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through... Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water. Let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that He had said He would do to them, and He did not do it. Our main point today will be this. God wills to give repentant rebels mercy. God wills to give repentant rebels mercy. Mercy. His desire is to give people who rebel against Him mercy. And we're going to break this up into two two points. Verse 1 through 4, we'll see that God God mercifully uses rebels. 
And then secondly, God mercifully saves repentant rebels. So he uses rebels in his mercy, and he will save those who are repentant rebels in his mercy. So just by way of reminder where we've been in the book. In Jonah chapter 1, God says, go. And Jonah says, no. God says, go to Nineveh. It's a, crazy, it's a crazy ask for him. That's a Gentile city. I'm a Jew. I don't go to Gentiles. I'm a Jew. No, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to do that. So he flees to Joppa, the opposite direction. And in God's mercy, he hurls a storm that stops the boat so that he can't go any farther. And Jonah, saying, I'd rather die than obey, says, cast me over. Throw me out of the boat. So, eventually the sailors throw him out of the boat. The, the sea is calmed. And last week we picked up and we saw that the Lord, in his sovereignty, appointed a great fish that swallowed him. It said, you're not going to die in rebellion. You're not going to die in a state of rebelling against my will. And he goes all the way down. He sinks down and looks up, cries out, Lord, be merciful. He, he, in his rebellion, comes to the end of himself and says, Lord, save me. And he cries out with thankfulness for the Lord actually delivering him. And last week we ended with God in his sovereignty saying to the fish, spit him out. And the fish vomits him out. And we end last week with Jonah now on dry land, rescued, not dead, not dead. And that's where we pick up. Today, our first point, God mercifully uses rebels. Look at verse 1 and 2. He uses rebels to accomplish his mission. But mercy is dripping all over the first two verses. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. This is mercy. Jonah is the guy who just refused to do God's will. Jonah's the guy who said, I don't want to do what you asked me to do, Lord. No, I'm going to do the opposite of what you asked. Humanly speaking, we would say, God's done with him. Shouldn't God be done with him? This is the guy who rebelled. Shouldn't God go find a more faithful prophet, a more obedient prophet, a more holy prophet? I, in my flesh, would expect to read in chapter 3, and Jonah went about his life, and the Lord didn't use him. But in the first verse, the word of the Lord comes a second time. Jonah has been spit up onto dry land and given a second chance. He's given mercy. Verse 2. Arise. Notice almost exactly. In verse 2, the word is almost the same as chapter 1, verse 2. His rebellion has done nothing but bring him right back to where he started. And the Lord's now giving a new start here. The word of the Lord came a second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city. In the ESV, this is puzzling to me, I really like this translation, but it says, Call out against it. But the Hebrew word is a subtle difference from what we read in chapter 1, call out against. The word here is proclaim to. It might not seem like a big difference. It's a subtle difference. 
But in this verse, notice there's two differences. He says call out to rather than call out against. And he doesn't say, for their evil has come up before me like he did in chapter 1. On the literary level, these are subtle hints that judgment will not be what Nineveh gets. We're getting subtle hints. The wording's different. What's left out is done so so that the readers are like, maybe something's different. Maybe judgment won't be the last word for this evil, violent city. Jonah, go and proclaim to Nineveh the message I tell you. This is astounding. The Lord uses rebels. The Lord will further His purpose to spread His fame to the Gentiles through a rebellious prophet. Find somebody in the Bible the Lord uses to further His his purpose, His mission that's not rebellious. Abraham lies. Noah is a drunk. David, a sexually immoral murderer. Moses, a murderer. You get to the New Testament, we think maybe it'll get better in the New Testament. Peter denies Jesus three times. I don't know the man. I don't know the man. You got the wrong person. I don't know the man. And then Jesus comes to him and doesn't say, I'm done with you. He says, do you love me? Then feed my sheep. And it's Peter who stands up in Acts chapter 2 and opens his mouth at the day of Pentecost and that rebellious man who denied Jesus is the one who thousands of people come to know Christ. Paul, a murderer. Maybe you're sitting here saying, you don't know my past. I'm rebellious. My past is so checkered and just stained with sin. The Lord can't use me to further His purpose. He needs to find a holy vessel. Well, sure, He needs holy vessels in the sense of Him sanctifying us, but your past does not disqualify you. Nor does your present if you turn to Him. He only uses rebels to further His purpose. And that is mercy. It's mercy. Here, Jonah, the guy who said no to God in chapter 1, the guy whose conclusion was, throw me overboard, I'd rather die than obey God, is the one he'll use in chapter 3 to further his fame. He will use you. He'll use you in spite of your sin. He'll use you in spite of your rebellion. That's all he's got to work with. Find a person who's not rebellious. God, in his mercy, uses rebels. And here he tells him, Jonah, when you go to the city, you're going to say what I want you to say. He says, call out or proclaim to the city the message I tell you. That's our job. That is the job of the Christian, to say what God has said. Our job is not to edit the message and make it more palatable. Our job is not to add to the message and make people feel like they can do something to earn it. Our job is to say, thus says the Lord and no more. Our job is not to say, oh, you culture don't like to hear that Jesus is the only way. Well, we can change that to accommodate you. Oh, you don't want to hear about sin? We, can, we got a message for you. No, we say, this is what God has said. Our job is to be faithful to the message 
that the Lord has given us to preach it, to talk about it, and to say no more and no less than God has said. So the Lord's going to use this rebellious prophet to further his mission. But notice again, I know this is redundant, but notice where he's to go. To Nineveh, a Gentile city. See, Jonah, the big picture, is a rebuke to the Jewish reader who is so insulated and thinks it's only about Israel. God is sending someone to Nineveh. So far, the the Jewish reader could say yes and amen to how vast God's sovereignty is. He has control over the elements. He brings the wind and the waves. He controls the fish. He makes the fish swallow up Jonah. He makes the fish spit him out. He's got sovereignty over all the universe. But where they'll balk, Is it the vastness of his mercy? Mercy for Gentiles? Mercy for Nineveh? Lord, I think not. Lord, Lord, we're we're cool with you being sovereign over the earth, but we're we're the chosen people. Don't you remember? We're the people. And Jonah is sent to Nineveh, a city of Gentiles. But really that's been the plan from day one, from the very beginning. Just a quick overview of some of the Old Testament up to this point, and you'll see that the storyline of Scripture has always been global. Not even after the fall, before the fall. In Genesis 1.28, he makes man and woman in his own image, and he says what? Be fruitful and multiply and what the earth? Fill it. Mankind created to reflect his rule and his reign, to reflect his glory on the earth. And he says, I want the earth filled with glory reflectors. I want the globe to be filled with people who reflect me. We don't do that. They don't reflect the Lord. And then after the fall, we get to Genesis 12, and he says to Abraham, from you will come an offspring who will be a blessing to Israel. Only Israel. Right? Please say no to the nations. And we continue in in the book of Exodus. We went through Exodus fairly recently. In Exodus 19, he says, Israel, you are a nation of priests. What do priests do? They represent people to God and God to people. Israel, as a nation, by its very nature, is to be representing God to the nations. And they're to be bringing the nations to the Lord, saying, Come to him, come to him, come to him. You get to the book of Isaiah, get to the second half of Isaiah, and you'll read over and over, the nations will come, the nations will come. They'll worship, they'll bow down. Read the Psalms. Don't, you won't get very long in the Psalms before you start reading. Let the nations be glad. Let the glory of God fill the earth as water covers the sea. God's mission has always been global. Always. He desires to be merciful to people all over the globe, from every nation, tribe, and tongue. That's his purpose. That's his mission. Here we get to the New Testament. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Of all nations. Here it's go make disciples of Nineveh. Go make disciples of Beijing. 
Go make disciples in Moscow. Go make disciples in Alexandria. The, the, the mission of God has always been global. His desire to give mercy for his name's sake has always been global in its intention. And one of the main purposes of the book of Jonah is to get the Jewish reader to say, it's not just about us. It's about them. It's not just about our holy huddle here. It's about going out to the nations and to our community with the message God gives us. So God, just to go back to our point here, who does he use to get that message out? Only the perfect. Only the people who got it all together. If that's the case, we can all just keep sitting here. He uses rebels. And that's an act of mercy. He doesn't say, you're on the shelf, I'm done with you. You botched it this week? I heard that word that came out of your mouth this week. You're done. No. He mercifully uses rebellious people. Next we see here, God uses a compliant rebel, though, in verse 3 and 4. It's mercy, but notice in verse 3 and 4, there's a change in Jonah. Last time, in chapter 1, he said, go to Nineveh. Jonah said, I think I'll go to Joppa away from the presence of the Lord. You want me to go to Nineveh? I got a better idea. I'll go to Joppa. But here, in verse 3 of chapter 3, there's a different prophet. Same guy, different guy at the same time. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh. The Lord has brought him to the end of himself. He sees now compliance with God's mission. Compliance with God's will is far better than rebellion. You want me to go to Nineveh? So Jonah rises and goes to Nineveh. The reason you read verse 3 is mercy. Do you see it dripping everywhere in these verses? Do you see the drops coming down? Mercy. He is a changed person. There's still problems, and we'll get to that in chapter 4, but he arises and does what God says. No more, I'll do it my way. Mercy has brought him to a place of compliance. He went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three, journey in, three days' journey in breadth. And notice in verse 4, he's going to preach. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overturned. That's a message. Now, God said, Say what I say. So before we get too critical of Jonah, the message that the Lord had given him was one of judgment. So he is saying what God wants him to say. But again, on a literary level, the book is giving us another seed for what we're going to find to be a problem in chapter 4. In, he, in the Hebrew, this sermon is five words long. There's no mention of, if you turn, there'll be mercy. There's no mention of who Yahweh is as the only God. It's just, you're all going to die in 40 days. That's the message. Amen. Close our Bibles. Have a good day. You're all dying in 40 days. He complies, but I think we see seeds of 
a Jonah that still does not want mercy to be extended to Gentiles. He's compliant. He'll say what God wants him to say, but he doesn't really, doesn't really want to. The word overturn is used in, in the book of Genesis, chapter 19, a number of times where God will overthrow Sodom and Gomorrah. It's a word that's loaded with judgment. It, he's going to say 40 days, which in the Old Testament, especially in the book of Genesis, in the book of Exodus, is tied to judgment. Noah's on the ark for 40 days and 40 nights while God judges. When Moses is on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights, down at the bottom of the mountain, Israel's rebelling. But if you read about Moses, what does he do when he finds out? He intercedes. You don't find that here. There's a man who's been brought to compliance, but there's still, there's still stuff going on in his heart. He's complying with the bare minimum. But before we get to the second point, I just want to point out God accomplishes his purpose through means. He uses people to accomplish his purpose. Here, the message goes out, but it goes out through a human. It goes out through his prophet. It goes out through his people. We in the New Testament were told in 2 Corinthians 5 that we are ambassadors for Christ. God makes his appeal to the world to be reconciled to him through who? Us. The means by which the gospel message goes out is through his people. We are the means whereby the gospel goes across the street to the cubicle next to you, to the desk mate next to you. We are the means whereby the gospel goes across the sea to lands where Jesus has not been proclaimed yet. The Lord's purpose is global, but he doesn't do it in a vacuum. He uses means. And the means are his people. There is no plan B. It is the church. It is the people of God opening their mouths, writing, proclaiming the gospel in whatever form, but it is through us. We participate in this mission. What about you this morning? Are you intentionally trying to fulfill that mission? Are you intentionally trying to to bring the name of Christ to those who don't know him. Are, are we? If you're not, I think the Bible's answer would be to repent. A lack of evangelism is disobedience. The Lord has not suggested. He's commanded his people share Christ. If you are in that place and you're, where do I start? I would encourage you to find one person and pray for that person. Whether it's a neighbor, whether it's a coworker, whether it's a classmate, whether it's a family member, find one person and pray. Lord, give me open doors. Lord, give me an open door with that person. Lord, give me an open mouth when you do open the door because sometimes I'm afraid to say stuff that will make things awkward. Lord, would you open my mouth? And pray, Lord, would you open their heart? Would you save them? So pray for three openings. An open door, opportunity. Pray for an open mouth, boldness. And pray for an open heart that they would receive the message that we bring. So God in his mercy uses rebels. Secondly, 
Starting in verse 5, God in his mercy saves repentant sinners. Look at the response in verses 5 through 9. This is a message that is five words long, that is, you're all going to die in 40 days. And look at the response of the people. In verse 5, the people in the city, the people of Nineveh believed God. You know where else you find that word believed, that Hebrew word, is in Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. And Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, we don't know how much Jonah explains. Based on what we have here, all they've been told is they're going to die. They believe the message. God has spoken, and we believe it. We think it's true. We agree with God about this. So what do they do in response? They call for a fast. They put on sackcloth. These are outward expressions of repentance. This would be a visible sign in this culture that we're mourning something. We, we found out we're guilty before a God who says he's going to judge us, so our response is, let us mourn. And notice the repentance has no respect of persons. Everybody, from the greatest to the least. There, there are those with influence and authority who don't think, well, it doesn't apply to me because I'm better than them. And there are, there are people who are in a, in a lower state who don't think, well, those are the bad guys out there. They think it applies to them too. It's, it's universal, citywide. It's repentance that is vast. These outward signs show sorrow. So just three kind of thoughts about what true repentance is. Number one, true repentance is first has to be us seeing our sin rightly. To be truly repentant, we have to see things clearly. We have to see God is right and I am wrong. There has to be some exposing of our guilt. There has to be a, I'm wrong. I have to see it clearly. Secondly, there has to be confession. There has to be confessing our sins and repentance, the best way I can explain it is we take God's side against ourselves. We say, Lord, what I did, you said that's wrong, and you know what? I did it, and it's wrong. For confession that's repentant confession in Scripture, there has to be some specific naming of sin. It can't just be, I made a mistake, and I think I'm wrong. No, Lord, I thought these thoughts, and they were unholy. Lord, these words came out of my mouth about my brother and sister, and they were tearing that person down. Lord, that was sinful, and I'm sorry. Lord, Lord, I have done these things. We name it. We confess it. We take God's side against ourselves. And thirdly, we turn from it. So we see it rightly, we confess it, and we turn from it. We'll find that later in this, this passage. But we don't just say, I'll stop this sin to go to that other sin. We don't just exchange sins. We forsake sin. We Think about it this way. In the Old Testament, consider J Joseph. Joseph is sold into slavery with Potiphar. What good would it do Joseph if Potiphar said, I don't like you and don't want you anymore, and he sold him to another Egyptian? If he goes from one slavery to another slavery, he's not free. Repentance isn't just, I'll stop this sin, but I'll pick this sin up. That's just going from one evil slave master to another. 
Repentance is turning from sin to God. It's saying, Lord, those things are wrong. Those things are evil. I don't want to do them. Lord, I want you. So confession first has to be an exposing of our sin. These things are wrong. I'm guilty of confessing. Lord, you're right. I'm wrong. I'm doing what you say is wrong. Lord, I don't want to do these things. We'll just tack on a fourth. No repentance will ever lead to perfection, though. Don't think turning from sins means I'm not going to sin the rest of my Christian life. You're going to stumble your way through the Christian life just like every other Christian has for 2,000 years. But it is a constant turning back to the Lord. I don't want to do those things. I want you. I don't want to do those things. I want you. So this, this repentance is citywide. It starts with the people, but it doesn't end there. Look at verse 6 through 9. The king repents. In verse 6, the word reached the king. Or the, the Hebrew word for word there is the message. Notice the primary actor here is not Jonah. It's the message. The power is not in the messenger, but in the message itself. And word of this message gets to the king. And the king says, I'm the king. I don't care what some god says. I'm the authority here. Is that what we read? No. Look at what we read. The word reached the king of Nineveh. And notice there's four things he does. He arose from his throne. He removed his robe. These first two things you read are acts of him divesting himself of authority. Kings don't get off their throne. That's the sign of their rule, the sign of their power. Their robe is a sign of their authority as well. What does the king do? He gets off his throne and he takes his robe off. Notice what else he does. He covers himself with sackcloth and he sits in ashes. The king humbles himself. If you were to go into Nineveh on this day, you would not know which person the king is because he looks exactly like everybody else. He is humbled. He is, he is showing outwardly, I'm just like everybody else. I'm just as guilty as these people. I'm not above them. I'm one of them. And then he's going he's gonna to give a decree. But this decree's already started, which is backwards from how things normally happen. Kings make decrees and people act, not people act, and then the king says something. But he's going to add to this, this repentance. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. First thing he does is he says, this is a citywide fast, and we're not eating, we're also not drinking. And cover your animals. Why are the, why are the animals here included in this repentance? Well, I think there's a signal of something that is a thread, again, that runs throughout the scriptures. God will renew all creation. There will come a day where man and beast are back in harmony like they were in Genesis 1. We find in Isaiah 11 there will come a time where the, where the children will play in the hole of the, the viper and they won't be harmed. We're here having a signal here that, that all of the city of Nineveh, not just the people, but the city will be restored, will be repentant. Just as one day the whole globe will, not just people, but all creation groans for His coming. There comes a day where 
The lion lays down with the wolf. And they're made right. I think we have a sign of that happening here. He continues. Look at what else. Not only cover yourself in sackcloth and ashes and and don't eat or drink, but then he tells them, call out mightily to God. We've seen that phrase, have we not, each week thus far? Jonah is to call out against the city in chapter 1. Jonah in chapter 2, verse 2, calls out to the Lord. And now notice what's happening. The people Jonah was to call out against are calling out to. They're going vertical. They're praying. Now they see we got a problem this way. So they call out. They, they pray. They cry out for mercy. They're praying. Is that not a good sign of repentance when we go vertical? Where it's not, I got problems this way, I got caught, oh no, but I have a problem with me and God. We, we talked about David a little bit earlier. When you read his repentance in Psalm 51, what does he do? He goes vertical against you. And you only have I sinned. He sees my primary problem is this way. So I need to do business this way. And they turn upward. They look up and call out mightily to God, earnestly to God. He continues, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hand. Nineveh was known as a violent city. When you read about Assyria through the Old Testament, they are bragging about how violent they can be. won't go into the details of what they used to do to people, but it's not good. It's graphic. And here the king is like, we need to turn from our evil and we need to turn from our violence. He names their sin and he says, we're turning from it. We're ceasing it. And then verse 9, he ends with this, the Lord's not obligated to do anything. If he's going to save us, it's going to be purely his grace. Look at verse 9. Who knows? He may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. That's up to the Lord. That's what he's saying here. Well, the Lord may choose to be merciful to us. So we have a, a, a rebellious prophet who God gives mercy and gives him a second chance and uses him to further the mission. We have a city that's rebellious that hears the message and repents. Before we end with verse 10, though, consider the effectiveness of the word of God in the hands of God. Five words in a city repents. Do you believe God can do that today? Do we believe that the Lord can do this kind of work today? Or through the proclamation of his message he can take it and by his power through his spirit he can bring about great results do we believe this or do we have a small view of God where he might be able to but he doesn't really want to again how merciful do we think God is how much mercy do we think he wants to give verse 10 When the Lord saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way. God saw their evil in chapter 1, verse verse 2, right? For the evil has come up before me. 
you may think you can hide it, but you can't hide it from God, is what he's saying in chapter 1, verse 2. But notice what else he sees. He sees their repentance. It doesn't go unnoticed. It doesn't go over God's head. It doesn't go past his eyes without him seeing. He sees their repentance. And in chapter 10, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them. He relents. We mentioned Exodus. 40 days, 40 nights. God, or Moses is on the mountain. When he comes down, they're in rebellion. And when they repent, you know what it says in Exodus 32? God relented of the disaster that he would do to them. He is merciful to repentant sinners. Which repentant sinners? Any of them. All of them. Here, an entire rebellious, evil, violent city that God says, they deserve my judgment. When they repent, he says, I will relent. I will pull back. I will give mercy. I will bestow mercy. I desire to bestow mercy, not just on Israel, but on the nations. He wants their repentance. But question, because the King James translates the word relent as, and God repented. Has God changed? Did he say, I'm, I'm not doing something that was wrong? No, he hasn't changed. Malachi 2 says, I the Lord do not change. James chapter 1, 17 says, there is no shadow of change with him. So how do we square this away? How do we, how do we get a God who doesn't change but says he's going to do something and relents. Well, I would say this. Two, maybe three things. Number one, in all of these decrees of judgment, there is implied the condition of if you repent. If you repent, I will relent. God's response, because he's unchanging, will always be mercy to repentant sinners. Jonah knows this. Not to give away chapter 4, but he knows God will be merciful. He knows that God's nature is unchanging. So when the people change, the Lord gives mercy. It's not a change in God, it's a change in the people. He sees they have turned to me, so I give mercy. So I relent. So grace upon grace upon grace upon grace is bestowed. We read this morning in Joel chapter 2 what true repentance is. It's a rending of the heart and not the garment. And why should we turn to him in Joel? Because he's merciful. Maybe you're sitting here and you're saying, my week has been terrible, morally speaking. Maybe you say, my entire life up until this moment has been terrible, morally speaking. The promise we have is that there is a God in heaven who when we turn to him doesn't say, get away. You've gone too far. No mercy can reach you because you are really, really bad. No, the promise we have is when we turn to him, he is merciful. And he bestows mercy. It's not a wish. I hope he's, I hope he's merciful. I hope I'm giving myself to a God who will give me mercy. No, it's a promise. Come to him, and he gives mercy. 
you may be a Christian here and you've been in rebellion. Maybe that rebellion has been a week. Maybe it's been a year. I don't know. If you turn to him, guess what you'll get? Mercy. His mercy is vast. Maybe you're here and you say, I have never come to a point where I have turned from my sin and trusted in Jesus. Maybe you're sitting here saying, what would happen if I did? What would, how would God's disposition be towards me? This text tells us it'd be mercy. He's abundant in mercy to you, to me, to anyone who turns to him. His son came to bleed and die and bear the curse that you and I deserve so that when we turn to him, we get mercy. We get grace. So that he can say in Romans 8, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Whether you're here and you say, I'm a Christian, or whether you're here and you say, you're not a Christian, the answer is the same for any of our rebellion, is turn to him and he gives mercy. Turn to him and he gives mercy mercy. So as we conclude, we find our God is merciful, far more merciful than we can grasp. He desires to give mercy to you. He desires to give mercy to those around you through your witness. So two kind of closing imperatives or commands. Number one, go to him for mercy. Go to him for mercy and go to others and offer his mercy. Mercy. Go to him for mercy for yourself. If you're in this room and breathing, I know you need it. We all need it. Go to him. And then go tell others they can find mercy in Christ. There's a God of mercy who loves to give mercy. So invite others to come as well. Let's pray. Father, we come and praise you that you are a God who is abundant in mercy who is rich in mercy, who gives it out and never has his bank account depleted. Father, we, have, we can have confidence that you will give it and give it. Help us to humble ourselves and ask. And Father, help us to go out and tell others that they may find the same mercy. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.